Hello and welcome back to the Comic Lira podcast. The podcast has deep dives into the best of comic books, graphic novels, mangas, penny dreadfuls, web comics, newspaper comics, essentially any single frame illustrations where the characters use bubbles to think or talk. I am your host, soon to be known as Comic Stan, uh, also known as in everyday boring life, Ryan. Uh, I'm the resident comic expert because once I looked at a comic front cover and my permanent co-host, I say permanent, I've tied you in permanently now. I'm stuck, aren't I? Yeah, you're, you're not going anywhere uh, until I say so. <laughs> He's the resident book expert in the sense that he owns at least one book that was signed by someone who claims to be the author, and his name is Jamie. Welcome <laughs> Hello. back. Hello, it's nice to see you again. I say welcome back like we're in your house, but... <laughs> welcome back to your own home. Yeah, I have a permanent room in your house with all the podcasts up, and occasionally I let you in. Yeah, this is it. Yeah. So it's my room in your house, essentially. That's how it works. Yeah, it was good that you asked for it to be built when you uh, when you commissioned the the, the property. Yeah, yeah they, absolutely. They don't see the property, so they don't know what it is. they don't know what it is. Beautiful postmodern brutalist structure. Yeah, the the extra nineteen rooms was an interesting choice, wasn't it? <sighs> Do you know what, mate? I just needed them all. Yes, <laughs> for stuff. Do you need them all? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But all of the things that I do. I think we're, we're trying to get all the levity out of the way now early because of the subject of this week's episode. Yeah, I, 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 had, a, I had a disclaimer. Well, should we do other stuff first, get the disclaimer right before the... Or should we do it right at the top so people know, so if they don't want to listen to the rest of it, then they don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so today we're going to be dealing with some incredibly sensitive topic matter involving mm. the Holocaust and genocide. If you are sensitive to these topics, we are going to... We are aiming to deal with them in a manner that is respectful to the communities involved. However, we would recommend that if you are sensitive to this and you don't want to hear it, this maybe might not be the episode for you. Yeah, I think that's uh, as, as much as we can really get into right now. It's, yes. uh, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult one, but I think it's such a well worth talking about book that it, it needs to be done. We regardless. can't talk about comics without talking about it. Exactly. And I would go so far as to say it's probably one of... I'd say objectively, it's the best comic I've ever read in terms of the feelings and the emotional reaction and everything. I think what you said to me, having read it the other night, speaks to how important it is. Mm. Am I allowed to say what you said? Uh, let's um, let's get let's get some other stuff out of the way first, and then it's we've got a little bit of preamble just because if you don't want for anyone listening if you don't want to listen to the main part about what we're talking about there's other stuff let's do a little bit oh the cat's on the key okay and the recording might have stopped mm. <laughs> and we are back despite a feline uh based intrusion. intrusion uh she walked over the keyboard started pressing the z button thought she was asleep turns is that out, is that a joke i don't know turns out the cat's an anti-semite well, that's actually the part of the book. That is the literally the part of the book. Oh, fuck, isn't it just? Yeah. Oh, my. So, um, before we get into that, let's get into a little of the preamble first. Uh, there's no news this week as such in the comic book world, because which is lucky because most of the news that, well, the only news we've talked about so far is people dying. Yeah, so the absolutely. fact there's no news is good news mm. in what that sense. But I did find one thing interesting, which might become a recurring uh theme and episodes depending on how on top of it i stay uh it depends how busy i am but we'll see but what i did find which i thought was interesting was i found the comic book uh sales numbers Ooh. for um for well pretty much every month um there's a website called comic book revolution and they link uh the numbers to what is called uh book scan 
uh, MPD book scan. So they kind of collate all with it. Yeah, book sales. But specifically, they find the comic book ones or yeah. comic book graphic novels, those kind of things. The reason this kind of spurred this interest is because I heard some news that uh, there's a there was a kind of growing sentiment that apparently the comic books were struggling. Yes. Uh, but apparently, but actually, they're doing better than they've ever done before. That's the truth. The reason that there was that stereotype about it was because basically um there was that stereotype because of the whole comic books not doing well because of the the whole go was a uh go woke go broke bollocks where they were turning some of the characters gay or bisexual or, right, or okay. changing gender or any of that stuff so people were like well the comic books aren't doing well and what it was was those specific titles i don't think were doing as well because comic book uh fans are for the most part, not as receptive to changes to their characters. Whether you mm. want to pin that to any kind of prejudice, prejudice, prejudice or not, um, needs more investigation. I don't want to definitely say one way or the other, but I know for a fact that comic book fans hate changes being made to their characters. Oh. They're very vocal about that. And, and I think they are the most vocal community. Yes. Well, especially when the films come out and they're different. Yeah, because I think... And, and I, don't, I don't want to get too tribal about it but us general bibliophiles have experienced our favorite characters from literature um becoming characters in movies for a lot longer yes and so i think for time in memoriam um books have been a great source for cinema mm. and so book readers are a bit more savvy to the fact that they're different mediums and that their favorite characters are going to change when put to screen and I'm not sure that comic book characters were as prepared for that in the mass market of films being based on comic books. Because films have been based on comic books since the 60s, but they were less common and they weren't the dominant culture in cinema that they are now. Hmm. Well, there's another aspect as well in that it's not just in the adaptations, but in the comic books themselves. So the problem, like we, we always bang on about how... Um, superhero comics especially are quite stagnant the more successful a character is the more kind of stagnant yeah. and less likely to be interesting the 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 title is and yeah. the, the reason for that is because each writer kind of inherits the character that says right here you go do something with it it's like all right i'm going to do something crazy and exciting and kind of really shake things up the characters go boo change it back and they go all right i've changed it back it's like this is boring. Yeah. Do something interesting. Like that's the problem. You're a hard bunch to please, aren't you? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's I. I, I don't. I try and get through some comics because there's there's. I had this. I, I had this with um uh, a Wolverine title that I'm reading currently. There's a lot of comics I read where I think I like the character, ah, but the, it's kind of boring right now. Mm. Like nothing interesting's quite happened. While and it was a Wolverine title specifically where I read an an issue. And they did something really cool and interesting. And I thought, bloody hell, here we go. Like, what's happened here? Is this new writer or something? Turns out, same writer, but they just started a new story and it was interesting. And what got to me especially was, I thought, this is why I'm stuck in. Because every once in a while, they do something really good. Yeah. And then I go, oh, I have to keep reading now. Because even if it's boring for a couple of issues, they might do something really good again in a bit. And that's how they get you. It's, it's not quite bad enough that you can just <laughs> drop it. <laughs> 
but there's so there's just enough interesting points where you go, oh, that was good, and then it keeps you hooked for another year, and then you go, yeah, oh, yeah, this is uh, nothing oh, it's good. Just more fucking Batman. Yes, exactly. But one you thing saved to note, Gotham again. Literally, every, the the amount. This was one of my biggest complaints about Batman is every once in a while, it's the entire city's in peril, <laughs> and you're like, how often? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> And you know what sucks as well? The best Batman comics, I think, have been the more personal ones. Mm. Uh, one of the best well-known ones. like The Killing Joke. The Killing Joke by uh, by Alan Moore, Alan who gets Moore. mentioned every episode. <laughs> every time. But his one was a very personal story. There was oh. no There was no crazy Gotham's in danger from being gassed by the Riddler or whatever. It was just like he's the joker and he's doing something personally to try and attack batman and his allies another big one the long halloween it's about a murder mystery so again no like oh we have to save the city there's a nuclear bomb and all this bollocks so so yeah it's common in batman as well but one thing i thought was interesting especially with the the sales is comic books generally and graphic novels specifically are doing very well better than they've ever done in terms of sales the accessibility from the internet means more people are buying them if albeit maybe digital rather than hard copies now and a lot of the best-selling titles are ones uh, that are aimed at teenage and young adults yeah and and the stories about them do involve um different sexualities different genders different uh, ideologies like they are exploring the things that apparently comic book su- superhero fans aren't as excited by so that it is prospering in a way and i think that's a good thing and i think as well the fact that those are successful mean that the comic books like dc and marvel i think they're going to keep trying to get that success on the superheroes and i, and I think it's so valid because my experience of superhero comics, the older ones, is that they were focused with they were focused solely on the existential threat that the adults were worried about, and that often became the the kind of driving force of the story. So they were focused on nuclear war mm. or GMOs. They were focused on the things that the adults were worried about, but they were being marketed towards young people. Whereas actually now, from what you're saying, it sounds as though the focus is being shifted towards the things that are actually affecting and the the things that young people are currently focused on and the, the challenges that young people currently face. And ideas of gender and gender and sexuality are so much more prevalent among young people because they have the space to explore it now. And so it's incredible that we're seeing media that reflects that. I think as well, it helps that the general zeitgeist of modern age is that young people are more tuned in to those you know, yes. global issues and um, societal issues and things yeah. like that. More so than, I don't say more than adults are, but the, the the younger generation is definitely more vocal about everything. Gen Z are killing it, man. Like sometimes I come away from, because I spend a lot of time around Zoomers mm. um, just for my job. Um, and sometimes I come away from it and I'm like, they are so much more thoughtful and considerate than us millennials were at their age. And I don't know if that's just because I am more thoughtful and considerate now. And so I observe that more keenly, or if it actually is because they are a more thoughtful and considerate generation. I think there's a, a lot of external factors that mm. I, you, you would take like a team of sociologists working around the clock to like nail yeah. down 
probably what it is but isn't that such a millennial answer this problem needs a think tank <laughs> yeah exactly i mean it's it's the smarter way of saying i don't know maybe smarter people know yeah absolutely so a few titles just to note which i thought was interesting was the highest selling so this is of across all what they refer to as uh orthographic novels mm. So I'm going to take that as just any graphic novel. Yeah. I, I think that's what that means. The number one is a title called Law Olympus, which I briefly looked into, and it is a like Greek mythology, modern day kind of spin. Oh, it's a cool. it's a love story about. Oh, I might have got the character. Right. I think it's Persephone. Persephone. Or, yes. Yeah, I think it's a modern take on her love story. Persephone is fascinating. Mm. Um, Persephone. There is a certain level of gender fluidity in Persephone. Mm. And so to say she with Persephone these days is almost... Redundant? Um, oh. Cancel-worthy. Right, right. <laughs> so P Persephone as a character, yes, she's coded as female, but there is this gender fluidity in Persephone. And so that particular character from Greek mythology is really striking a chord with people who are gender fluid and are trans. Yeah, and that might explain why the title is doing so well. Mm. And to give you a kind of comparison, so uh, they describe the sales here as... Um, a specific volume, uh, volume three of Law Olympus, has apparently sold uh, 14,532 units. Now, I don't know what a unit is yet. I imagine that's a copy. I, I don't know, actually. It might, a unit might be like a deliverable amount of comics to like a comic book store or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. I, I genuinely don't know. That's um, a valid point. But to compare it, I think this is a good way to go. The top superhero graphic novel... Interesting title, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Last Ronin, which I have heard very good things that about. sounds dope. And I have heard very good things about the title. Yeah. Um, apparently it's very good. Uh, but that sold 8,190 <laughs> units. <laughs> you just choked on your drink at that, <laughs> at that revelation. I just think that when you're talking about something as mass market as comic books... I should also say this is for November 2020, these figures. Oh, so it's 8,000 units in November. Yes. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would be fascinated to see how much that jumps up in December. Well, I th it could be a different title. Because so mm. these are these are units for ones that have like just either released or what have you. I think the Law Olympus one's interesting because it's a volume. So I, if, it, if it was a weekly or monthly release issue, then... There's probably a lot of readers who have gone, I'll wait for the whole volume to come out and then read it. Yeah. And that could be why it's then spiked. I think a lot of people prefer that to the to the single issue reading and waiting for the next one. Yeah. So, but I think, I'd say, these are very interesting numbers. I, I'd like to keep uh, kind of look on these. Second in the superhero one, interesting, The Sandman. Even though pretty far from the superhero title, but he is that, yeah, he's yeah, yeah. part of the DC superhero universe. So that's technically correct. And then you've got like Stranger Things graphic novel, super apparently. Makes sense. Fortnite, uh, Godzilla versus the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Batman Spawn, which apparently very good. And interestingly still, yeah. as if we hadn't mentioned already, Watchmen 2019 <laughs> edition. So a reprint of the original Watchmen. <laughs> we are destined to talk about Alan Moore consistently. Because he's such a heavy figure, a huge influential figure in comics uh, we have to keep talking about this man who thinks he's a wizard do you know i i've always loved alan moore's work right yeah uh, totally i didn't realize just how deep his roots in the comic book world were until we started doing this podcast and every single episode it's unavoidable that alan moore gets mentioned it's unavoidable for us especially because 
we're both fans of his. Yeah. But also when you, I think if you ask most comic book fans, anyone who knows comic books at all, and you say, who's the best comic book writer? They might be um, like, well, my favorite is X. But I think a lot of people would say, I guess Alan Moore is considered the best. It's between him, Grant Morrison, um, a few modern day ones, Chip Zdarsky comes up a lot. Matt Fraction yeah. is uh, very good. Um, Tom King nowadays, especially. Yeah. Uh, I always say Brian K. Vaughan. I don't know if he's considered the wider world. I think that might be our bias that we both think he's fucking wonderful. But also the wide last man's critically acclaimed. Saga's oh. critically acclaimed. Uh, the Runaways critically acclaimed. So he's got to have some kind of stat. He might not be at the top. He's, he's the top 10 easily, I would yeah. say. Um, oh, uh, Brian Michael Bendis. You have to say him. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of his. Um, he's done some I good stuff. I don't know him. He's created more ca good characters than good stories, in my opinion. He, he makes these big stories, but mm. he sucks at endings. Oh, I that... think that's a common trope of like common criticism. We're not going to have that today. No, no. Um, we are. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to move along, and we are going to get into our uh, weekly corners. Hey. Which uh the first one being uh Jamie's uh comic books without the pictures and a lot more words corner. Yeah, this is this has been the uh, it's it's fairly yeah, um slim pickings this week. So As in there weren't as many books um There just weren't any produce, books. Yeah, they just stopped making books. Or Absolutely. you've or you've read them all already and you I've have, read you all have no them. new thoughts. <laughs> That's that family guy thing, uh, the family guy joke of um I've just watched every single YouTube video ever and uh all good. Not a bad, not a bad one in the bunch. <laughs> so I, I started reading that Philip Pullman novel and then put it down through no fault of Philip Pullman's. It was beautifully written. I just didn't. I just didn't. Um, and then we live we live busy lives as well. Yeah, I, yeah. I've been very busy. Um, the other thing that's happened is that the book that has no pictures this week has been a video game. Um, <laughs> it's like a book it's a, it's the, a very very interactive book yeah um like a choose your own adventure electronically transferred onto a games console yeah pokemon violet and scarlet came out oh that's uh that's an interesting topic i hear it's not very good that is exactly what i've heard but like any good crack dealer game freak got to me young and so i can't have not played it if that makes sense to you would you not consider waiting for reviews and then getting, maybe especially after this debacle? Yeah, I think so. So to be honest with you, because I'm not seven, I've not been playing it online. It's been a fairly insular experience. And so the bugs and, and the lag and stuff haven't really been an issue for me. And the way I play Pokemon games, the way I play any RPG is that I'm on autopilot while I'm listening to podcasts or watching TV or having... Often I'll be on the phone with my partner whilst I'm playing Pokemon. And so really I've just been grinding for Pokemon with good terastalized types. Mm. They introduced a new feature where your Pokemon, you can terastalize one Pokemon per Pokemon Center trip. And it turns into a crystal, but it gets a different type potentially. And so suddenly your fire type Pokemon is a water type. Interesting. So it's still does stat it still has stab same type attack bonus with its original type but it also gets same type attack bonus with its new type and defensively it is solely its new typing and you get the pokemon with the different terastalized types through raids and so this little cave will like pop up on the map and you go to it and you 
fight the 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 hard pokemon and you can have the option to catch it at the end of it and so i've just been doing endless raids to try and get pokemon with funky types the one thing they did they did something that was fan service for me like for me and mine do you know the flying and surfing pikachu thing uh no they made a pokemon card in the 90s called flying pikachu right. and it is a pikachu with a bunch of balloons tied to it i vaguely have heard something like about this yeah. yeah um and there's always been the myth of the, the flying pikachu so now you can get a pikachu that when it terastalizes becomes flying type and the flying type form for terastalized pokemon is a bunch of balloons tied to them mm. and so you actually get flying pikachu and that has made my fucking life. And they even give you one for like buying it early. You get a little code in the case. And, and so I have a flying Pikachu, Ryan, and it's made my day. This is sounding to me a lot like, and this is a very millennial reference, but Malibu Stacy with a new hat. It's, it's like, exactly Malibu Stacy with a new hat. It's like the game's broken. It doesn't work. Like the graphics suck. Like you, it's, it's unplayable. It's like, what about a flying Pikachu? Son of a bitch, I'm in. <laughs> That's all he had to say. So that, but I, I did, I did purchase a new book, which I have to tell you about. Okay, it's the Satsuma Complex by Bob Mortimer. Um, but I went past uh one of my favorite. I don't know if it is a big chain. They have one in Norwich in a little place called Aylsham. Um, I, a, a local bookshop called the Book Hive, and they had a whole stack of signed copies. And they let me pick the one with the best autograph. Right. And so I have a I have a signed first edition of Bob Mortimer's new novel. And it says, Thank you for buying. Fuck you. He didn't he didn't inscribe it. It just it just has his signature. Because that would be the best signed oh, version. Oh, well, but not but not from Bob Mortimer, because he's such a sweet man. Yeah, that'd be like uh that'd be like your granddad swearing at you. Absolutely. Um but Bob Mortimer, he's he I just I I think he's brilliant. Train guy. If you've not seen it, you need to go on Instagram and look at Annoying Guy on the Train, and it's Bob Mortimer being an annoying guy on a train. Um, but his comedy's so keenly observed, and he's so funny, that I think this might be the, the next book that I finish. Right. So I'm Big very, very excited. Accolade. Absolutely. So I'm really, really excited for it. So next time, hopefully I will have read the Satsuma Complex, and I will have a review for you. Nice. Well... Back over to my corner, which mm. is uh, comic books sped up really fast, so it looks like a moving image. Um, <laughs> You're doing well. You're getting there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, so I got around to watching a film that I put on a list. So I have a list on my phone of films that I need to watch, and I think about 80% of them are uh, horror films. Okay. Because horror films are like, for me, it's that genre where you just... You can pick one up and it's a fun ride. And even if it's bad, it's still schlocky and can yeah. be fun, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I've got a list of them to get through. And I picked one up thinking, you know, this would be interesting to go through. Uh, it was a Sunday, I think Sunday last week, and I was a bit hungover. And I thought, I'll watch this film. And I picked up from a list of, like, recommended good films from this year. And I thought, I like, I like to stay up to date, you know, like modern ones. And the one I watched was a film called Fresh. And I, I should know the other... I should know the actresses' names, but the only person I know is, for related reasons, uh, is Sebastian Stan, who played um, the Winter Soldier in the MCU. Okay. So I recognized him. But so the plot of the film, and you'll have to bear with me here, <laughs> the plot of the film is that uh, a woman, a young woman who is um, disillusioned with the modern dating scene, especially the online dating and everything, 
film starts with her having just a crappy um date and it just kind of illustrates all the bad dates into this one for you know uh, uh, make it easy to tell um she's kind of fed up and then she runs into a guy in a supermarket who is very charming very nice asks her out they go out it's all good very um very rom-com style like everything's going great yeah. kind of thing and then they she goes around to his because there he's taking her away on a trip and that's a bit soon isn't it yeah yeah <laughs> he's like he's like hey this is going well let's go on a trip and then she goes around his and then she passes out and then she wakes up chained in what is a nice basement but a basement nonetheless yeah and he basically breaks it to her that the reason she's there is because he is going to uh slowly um remove parts of her to sell as uh human meat on the black market and the title of the thing as well and your expression is is exactly what the normal person's expression to this synopsis is um the title that's why the title is fresh it's well yeah yeah it's fresh meat and while say that's like the basic synopsis and i won't say anything else because there's a lot to enjoy when you go in knowing as little as possible but it's a film that watching it, it got to me so much at one point that I had to stop watching to the point where I felt shaken from parts because of how good the actress, the main actress is. Unfortunately, I don't have a name here, but you know, you can find it, but she's amazing in it. She, okay. she, she does each, each part extremely well. It's especially the part, like I was just saying, when she realizes what's happening, she has a very realistic reaction to it. It's not like, a schlocky horror film where they're just like oh my god help help somebody like it's just you know she's like you can tell the the creeping dread and the denial that she's actually in that situation yeah. and it slowly comes it slowly dawns on her that this is actually what's happening and how cold he this guy suddenly become and it and and then there's scenes later where it made me genuinely have to stop watching and then i because i was so affected by it and I thought, you know what? I need to finish this film because if I stop now, it'll affect me more as the film I stopped watching. Yeah. So I finished it and it's a great film. Like it's a great horror film, but it's also just a, a great film. It's, I don't want to give anything of the endings away, but it's really good. And also it has, it says a lot about um, male-female dynamics, uh, their roles in like, it plays on rom-coms a bit as well as horrors um it's a lot to say about you know the dating scene and relationships mm. and things like that as well um it's worth watching if you can get past some of the more surgical aspects of the film surgical that's a that's a yes. not that's not an adjective i want to hear there's one interesting aspect which i thought was good and i don't i don't think this is spoiling too much but the, the removal of parts of the of the character mm. of characters in it one thing that's interesting is that the guy who does it, so he's a proper surgeon and he probably, he doesn't put them properly under, but he does give them an epidural so they don't feel anything. Yeah. And, Oof. well, initially it's like, if it was a proper horror film, like Texas Chainsaw Mask, it'd be like, you know, chainsaw and ah, blood and all this. And you'd be like, ah, you know, it's a, it's a horror film. Like, ugh, They're crazy. not going for gore though, are they? No. And this, this is what makes it worse. More insidious. It's more insidious. And the character, they, they're kind of partially awake for parts and they can't feel anything, but they know what's happening. And the actress, again, sells it 
so well yeah. that it, that's what made me turn off initially. That's disgusting. It's disgusting. But again, finishing the film was so worth it. It's it's really good. It's difficult to get through in parts, but it, it really pays off in the end. That's as much as I can say without spoiling it. It really pays off. It's worth watching. And Murder I tell you, corner with Ryan. <laughs> yes. Are you likely to watch this film? Um, Genuinely. Because if not, I can tell you some spoilers. Well, I think we should leave that one to the listener's imagination. That's fair. I think I think that is an apt and accurate description. Yes. And anything further just becomes pornographic. <laughs> I mean, well, or like snuff film kind yeah. of. But I will say it's the violence and the gore. Uh, that, that's a, oh, another thing. Well, it there's, sounds as though there's not a lot of gore. There's almost no gore. And the gore would make it less scary. Yes, exactly. Because the fear here is the un... The fear here is the implication of what they're seeing and what they're experiencing that you're not seeing, isn't it? Yes. And also the main actress, she's without the gore, she's so good at getting across the, mm. the pain and the suffering. So they didn't need it. No, exactly. Um, so yeah, definitely seek out if you want an interesting film, if you can if you think you can stomach it, it's it's worth watching. So that's all I've got for my, uh, what might become my horror corner if it keeps yeah. going like this, to be fair. Although, although last time it was like Weird Al or something, so it's not <laughs> always going to be crazy horror. Um, but I guess we should, we've come to the point where we should probably dive into the main course. Yes. Um, so if, as, uh, if you are sensitive to the things that I mentioned in my disclaimer. I was going to say, if you want, do you want to repeat the disclaimer, if anything? Yeah. Just, so to, just in case. We, today we are talking about Mouse, which is one of the finest comic books ever written. It's an incredible story. Um, it does, however, deal very candidly with the Holocaust, the horrors thereof. Um, and so we are going to talk about this in a way that is as sensitive to the communities involved as we possibly can. However, we are aware that some listeners might find this really distressing. And so I'd recommend that if you don't want to hear quite a candid discussion about the Holocaust and the horrors that happened there, this might be the point to pause the podcast. But before you pause, uh, up top, great comic, highly recommend, worth reading, expertly written, I would say. If, if, if you are somebody who's really sensitive to it, it's still worth reading because it's so beautifully written and drawn. Yes. And there's much more to it than just the Holocaust and the original, the yeah. the, the original basis. Um, but before you turn off, if you if you ask to whether it's be plan on turning off, uh, I just want to say one of the best aspects of the story, and we're going to get into it more as we go along. But it's set in the modern day, mm. and it's the writer of the comic talking to their dad who survived the Holocaust. Let me, yeah, let me, let me get, let me get yes. into it. I'll give you the synopsis. I feel like I'm like chasing, catching like that. But before you turn off, like, yeah. just just hear this first. Yeah. So, um, Marius started in 1980. Something that. I found surprising when I was researching for this episode is that it was serialized. Really? So this was published over 11 years, um, 1980 to 91. And a monthly releasing issue? I assume so. It only says it was serialized, so I don't mm. know what its specific release schedule was. It's in chapters, yes. so I wouldn't be surprised if those... So it's like five chapters per volume, so 10 chapters? Yeah. So maybe they came out like that, and they yeah. were about... So it might have been one a year... Yeah, I think it might have been about 20-ish issues a chapter, and yeah. that is about the, the size of a normal comic book issue. Yeah. So, yeah. And Art Spiegelman, who wrote it, was a working cartoonist. And so this um, was written alongside all of his other work. It is 
I would call it postmodernism. Mm. I, I would say that this is a postmodern inter- postmodern retelling of the story because all of the characters are drawn as different animals based on their ethnicities. And so, for instance, German soldiers are cats. Is it ethnicities or is it technically religions because of um, Art's girlfriend? Who is French and portrayed as a frog. But she's a French Jew and she's also portrayed as a mouse, isn't she? So she's never actually portrayed as a frog, but Art jokes in the modern day, he says... He's talking about writing the comic, yeah, and that's or the his the creation of the comic is a pivotal plot point of the comic yeah. itself. So it's kind of meta in that regard, but not in a Post-modern. showy yes, and not in a showy way like meta texts are nowadays. But in a very kind of the the creation of the the comic itself is informed by the way it was made. I suppose this is where me having a background in English literature kind of it don't impress me much. It does, but. Before I came to this, I had a really good grounding in postmodern literature, right? And what it was, and the idea of a novel as a text within the context of a piece of fiction is one of the key tenets of postmodernism. So maybe it's that it's something that's been done quite a bit in literature, but mm. is one of the earlier, earlier, most well-known examples Exam- in comics. Yeah, and, and, I, and yeah, and I would absolutely agree with that. And so all of the characters are portrayed as different animals based on either ethnic or religion or just where they sat within that conflict. And so, you know, the, the British all are a certain animal, the Germans are cats, the British are dogs, aren't they? Or is that the Americans? I think it's the Americans, but that could have been just kind of any non-German at the time. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. The non-Nazis were pigs, weren't they? The, was pole, the, the Poles Polish. were pigs. Right. The Polish were pigs, the Nazis were cats, the Jews were mice. Um, and so this story is, is a retelling, it's, it's essentially Art's way of putting to paper the conversations that he had with his father, who was a Holocaust survivor, and it's his father's story. But within that is the story of Art getting this story out of his father. Um, and so, if I'm allowed to jump straight in, sure, go ahead. I think one of the most fascinating things about this, and it's something that has become really prominent in the way that we portray and discuss the Holocaust in history, is the element of generational trauma that stems from that particular genocide. And we said before recording that that like is one of the, the it's the biggest theme of this entire graphic novel it's yeah it's how we deal with trauma on a generational basis because something that we see time and time again is that the trauma that art's father experienced is being passed down to art in this really wrenching meaningful way And I think this has become a big part of the conversation that Jewish people are having around the Holocaust. Really great example of that in the real world is young Jews, and I'm going to tear up talking about this, young Jews having their grandparents or great-grandparents concentration camp numbers tattooed on them. Mm. And it's, you know, that's fucking wrenching. And it's so... And I think initially when people saw it, they thought it was really disrespectful, but it's a way of them honoring the struggle and honoring their heritage and actually bonding across generations with 
you know, they're, they're at their ancestors at this point who experienced that. And I think this is one of the first, it's the only place we've seen that portrayed in comic books in this way. Yeah. I think when it comes to stuff like that, I think just an interesting side point is with any kind of, um, with any kind of like marginalized community across any kind of lines, there's always an element of, well, these people did this thing that might be construed as offensive, but it's actually their way of, of coping with whatever it is there's to do with. And I think there's a tendency where people either on either side of things go, oh, no, it is offensive, it's callous. And the other goes, no, no, it's their way of it. And the truth is, it's it can be both for both parts of the same community. Like, they're not a monolith. There's no yeah. like, yes or no, it is or isn't. And also, it's- if you're not Jewish and you're offended by it, you're being offended on somebody else's behalf at a behavior they are acting out. Yeah, but what I mean is as well, there's just as much chance that there are Jewish people who could have the same criticisms. Yes. but And that's what I mean. It's it's not about, oh, no, they think this. No, they think this. It's they think both because they're not a monolith. That's yeah. the main thing. But I mean, personally, I think it's touching. Yeah, I understand it for sure. And I, would, I wouldn't criticize anyone's, any individual's way of... of dealing with trauma as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else like Mm. everyone has their own mechanisms that they're not even aware of like that's the main thing is you try and put yourself in other people's shoes but people have their own individual again mechanisms and they might not even be aware of them so it sometimes it takes like people going to therapy before they're like oh this is why i do this thing is because of trauma or what have you but then also uh, the theme of this this whole thing the generational trauma so it's not even your own it's like your ancestors or your parents or grandparents so yeah there's a lot of different aspects to this to to cover which is a credit to just the writing of it of the story in itself it covers so many aspects by just literally telling the story of the people so it's not like it's not like art went into this like i'm talking about generational trauma i'm going to talk about the birth of stereotypes i'm going to talk about um how uh, this affected like entire communities of people i think just by telling his father's story and inadvertently his own story he's gonna cover all those points because they're all related and isn't it fucking powerful this book it's so powerful it i think it draws you in i think the art style and the animals draws Mm. you in in a almost kind of like like an unintentional maybe intentional but in a kind of a lesser known kind of like, oh, come on, it's not that bad. Look, there's mice and cats and like, it's cartoon. Like, come And then that kind of lulls you into false sense of security. And then it slowly hits you with the, the real life tragedy. And then your kind of, your guards down to it affects you more once you get to those points. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it was a genius decision yeah. to cast all, all the characters as animals. And I agree with you. It kind of, it gives you a degree of separation from it which allows you to even start to read it and to get through it. And then there are points where he pulls back the curtain and you see these characters portrayed in human form again. And suddenly you realize that everything you'd been reading happened to real human beings. Yes. And including old photos, black and white photos and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and, and, and he uses it to such great effect. That I agree with you. There are points when I first read it that I was being carried along in this story. Almost, almost whimsical because you associate it with other cartoons where 
personified animals. Yeah, absolutely. And then suddenly the curtain gets pulled back on you and you have this wrenching moment where you realize that it's always in the back of your head that this is a real history mm. and that this is a human story. But then you, he, he forces you to consider that at the point he wants you to. And he, ha- he has control over the point at which he makes that story human again. Yeah. And it, it, it makes it so much more powerful, I think, than if you'd just seen these things happen to people depicted as humans and not animals. Yeah. And also, it does kind of create some moments of levity as well. Uh, yes. One I specifically made a note of was, for some reason, I, I made some notes for Volume 1. I have no idea where they've gone. I could not find them on my phone. So, so I only have notes on Volume 2. But yeah. I don't think there's so much of a difference between Volume 1 and Volume 2 other no. than specific contextual parts, yeah. which I think the main meat of the story is Volume 2 anyway. Yes, I would agree. So, but um, in there's one little part I thought was cool where uh, we've said before, Art uh, is he debates in the comic whether to, with his girlfriend whether to make her a frog or a mouse yes and specifically says i was gonna make you a frog which he never does but he says i was gonna make you a frog and then have a rabbi wave a magic wand and turn you into a mouse <laughs> and that was gonna be the um the that that inter in universe version of a um a conversion to judaism yes. so it was gonna be like instead of going through all the real life stuff it was like abracadabra like turn to a mouse and yeah. it's like congrats mazel tov like, <laughs> so i thought that it has those moments which are quite nice but they are few and far in between so it kind of they are natural bits of levity which i don't think we necessarily even attended but just happen because it's a real human story i think yeah and the normalcy of his relationship with his partner is at points jarring and at points touching mm. um and it feels and I, very real doesn't it? I mean, all the relationships do because they are. They, well, this is it. Yeah, it's 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 his genuine portrayal of, you know, him extracting that story from his father. But particularly his relationship with his partner, we don't see much of it through the story, do we? But the parts you see, it portrays a very normal relationship between two people in the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, dealing with their problematic parents. Yeah exactly um and you know they're conversations that me and my partner might have about our parents at some point you know they're 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 kind of very normal conversations but they're being had within the context of this i don't want to call it a grand story but it is a grand story isn't it it's a grand story of of a huge event yeah of course and i think one thing is in one of the themes of it is art kind of feeling guilty about he literally at one point he feels guilty not experiencing the holocaust yeah and 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 specifically that speaks to a wider feeling of the younger generations feeling like they're not going through the same hardships as their parents the survivor's guilt yes and not it's like that specifically is survivor's guilt because people died but there's also a, a grander version which is just again just less hardships like it's not to say people dying but it's like you didn't go through things as difficult as your parents did. So you feel like you've taken from their success and you haven't earned it or something like that. Yeah. Like that, I think that's, that's a much more generalized common way of feeling. And I think that's more, I don't think it's not necessarily survivor guilt because his dad survived, but it's his dad had to go through everything that he didn't. And not mm. only that, but it's because he's profiting off of the tragedy yeah and he he is very aware of that but at the same time it's a story that needs telling and i think 
there's one part where he confirms that uh in a interesting way where everyone's like getting at him in the success of the first volume or the first couple of issues that people are like hounding him about the success yes. and one of the parts is people are trying to get him to make adaptation or just okay yes. adaptations and he refuses and i think that's his kind of um his meeting halfway of i will publish this book and i will make money from it but i won't allow further adaptations because they're not required i need to maintain ownership of this story because it's my dad's story not your story yes and even though he could maybe we don't know if behind the scenes he there was some kind of requirement for him to retain ownership and they said no we can't make it if you own it so he said all right then we can't make it but whatever it was he definitely wanted to keep it in within this confines of this is a story it's not going to be changed and it's not going to be mass produced or commercialized yeah and 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 i and i think he made the right choice definitely yeah i really do i do think maybe this far along and just for the sake of keeping the story to be told maybe now is a good time for maybe like an animation or something but i mean like a very true to almost what you could do like a scene for scene word for word animation and i think just again just to keep the story alive and keep it you know told and keep it known yeah i think that could be a good thing but again that's completely it's it's not just the story of the holocaust because anyone can make an animation about the holocaust Mm. it's the story his dad's story and his story yeah absolutely and it's i think it's i mean talking a little bit about art i'll say one thing where the boy says well i made a note about how at one point he draws the illustration of him drawing his comic over on top of a pile of bodies so that is a very literal yeah this is how he feels about the comic yeah he he agonized over this this was his magnus magnum opus it's worth noting that he wasn't a writer of hard-hitting novels um so he was like a um he was a cartoonist yeah so he started his career with tops do you know tops are uh not especially now they're the trading card people ah yep yep, tops trading cards yeah um so he illustrated trading cards in the 60s and then he was really influential in the underground comic scene um so he did wacky packages and garbage pail kids i was gonna say some of the comics i saw they done because i did have a brief look they are what i describe as like pulp comics yeah, absolutely yeah he was a writer of pop pulp comics yeah um so he was of that generation in the 70s and 80s kind of making pulpy i mean garbage pail kids i've never properly got into them or anything but mm. all i know about them is that people go oh they're terrible and the people who like them are like yeah that's the point yeah they are meant to like they're meant to be like anti-aesthetic almost yes. like they're meant to look horrible but like a car crash to draw you in and yes it's interesting he went he he must have had that kind of sensibility of just because something's not pleasant you can still deride you know beauty or interest or something out of it something that just a little factoid that i find really interesting about garbage pail kids mm. um you're not allowed to export or in, you, they're, they're not allowed in mexico um, <laughs> so since the late 80s there has been a ban in mexico um, it's one of their important export laws, which bans all representations of minors in degrading or ridiculous manners, in attitudes of incitement of violence, self-destruction, or any form of behaviour antisocial. And so, 
Garbage Pail Kids was cited as an example in that law of something which portrays children in a ridiculous manner or having attitudes to the incitement of violence or self-destruction. And so Garbage Pail Kids has not been allowed in Mexico since 1988. And quite a difference from America, where you can make a lot of jokes about the other way. Exactly. <laughs> How they are the opposite of that. Um, yeah, no, I just thought it was wild. Um, but no, Art Spiegelman, um, this was his magnum opus. And, and I, I always assumed that this was a novel that he wrote in two volumes. I didn't realise that it was released in a serialised way. That is very interesting to me because <sighs> this, mean, this seems like the kind of story that would just be like a just an entire graphic novel or two volumes and then yeah. just released. And the idea that you could get an issue of this, like 20 pages of this, and you are just seeing a snapshot of a day in the life of somebody in a concentration camp, imagine how affecting that would be in amongst a stack of superhero comics. I would think that at the very least, I would just... I'd assume that the front covers were very, very obvious as to what it was. I would love to see the way it was. Yeah, I would love to see some of the originals because I imagine imagine they're collector's pieces at this point. I was going to say, that's going to be my new going... Because I go to comic book shops a lot, but Mm -hmm. when I flick through, I'm just... I'm never really looking for anything, so I'm always just kind of like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I remember this. Oh, that's cool. So now I'm going to have like a... I wonder if I can find an issue of Mouse. Yeah. That'd be very cool. I think it would be fascinating. Yeah, and so there's a lot to cover. I mean, I said I have some notes, but I, I, my notes don't feel like they cover everything. Like I, I got snapshots of things. Yeah, and I think that in itself does say something because there's no kind of apart from the worst, apart from the worst points of the Holocaust, and yes. even those, it doesn't feel like they hit the worst, except for maybe like the actual points of genocide. But everything else. It feels so like just so much terrible stuff happening, but over so long a time, and they're broken up by the modern day, and because uh and his dad they go back and forth into the story, and then their modern telling, but the all the horrible stuff that happened at and in Auschwitz and everywhere, it feels like you don't almost you don't pick up the gravity of how bad it is because it just slowly draws you in, and then it just yeah. happens for so long, and then eventually it just pandas and stops like there's no point of liberation there's a slow transition to them not being prisoners anymore and that yeah i because you expect when you think of the liberation of a subjugated people you think that that liberation is going to be this great orgasm of activity right Mm. but yeah no that i i completely agree with you it's something that the the liberation never really felt complete at the end, did it? Yeah. He all, even, even once he was with the Americans, he st- it still felt as though he was in danger. There was never a point in that story until... There was never a point in that story where I felt like the character was safe. Even though the whole way through I knew it was going to end well for him, there was never a... I agree with you. There was never a point that, that his liberation felt complete. There's also an aspect which I thought was very interesting where they are taken from the concentration camp because the Nazis at the time knew that they were losing ground. Yes. So they were, rather than, I always just imagined through complete ignorance that when they were losing the war, they just abandoned the places and that's when the the camps were liberated. But they literally took everyone, marched them all the way to the next place. And then in the process of, I've got his name here, Vladek, yeah. Art's dad 
being released, he was on death's door already. Yeah. And but the Americans were doing a prisoner exchange, yeah. so uh, Nazi prisoners for Jewish prisoners. But even in that, they were literally he was taken from one spot to the other with a bunch of other jewish people and then they got to a place and then it was right get on this train they'll take you to the next stop and the americans will be there we're not getting on this train they get on the train they go there get off of the stop no one there wander around for a bit empty houses yeah and then suddenly run into more nazis yeah and they can actually go right hold up you stay here we don't know what's going on and they're like we've just been freed and then I was like, well, hang on, like, we're going to lock you in this room until we know what's going on. So they're like, fucking hell, like, what's going on? Yeah. And then the next, they literally sleep in a barn, wake up the next morning, those Nazis have gone, just disappeared. So they go, oh, well, what do we do now? Walk down the road a bit, another group of Nazis. Yeah. So what that got to me was, one, the messiness of the real situation, but like the admin of a war ending or like yeah. a war, a retreat. And like, it was all messy. No one was talking to each other. No one knew what was happening. These Nazis were like holding on to Jews. And then um, the commander or whatever the title was, his girlfriend was trying to convince him to be like, leave the Jewish people. Let's save ourselves and get out of here. So he was like caught between this, like we need to leave. But also I've been told my, and well, not, I don't know if it's entire life, or whatever, but he's like, my main mission right now is to, you know, stop these people having freedom. Yeah. And he's kind of caught between what he should do and stuff. And the Jewish people are just like, just like, tell me what's going on. Like, yeah. I just want to know, am I free? Am I not? Like the Jewish people at the end, almost, they seem like a bunch of people stranded at a fucking airport. Yes. And that, that's what I mean by it's it, the admin of war, yeah. which you never think about the admin of uh, subjugating people. Yeah. You don't. Yeah. I suppose you don't consider, yeah, I, it, it it really, when I first read it, it really alerted me to the fact that when a sweeping, we, we think of the liberation of the surviving Jewish community at the end of the Holocaust as being, again, as I said, this great orgasm, this great final moment of liberation. The same with the liberation of um, black people indentured into slavery in America. Yeah. Whereas actually on Juneteenth, Juneteenth wasn't the day that these people were freed was when they found out that they were free. yeah June... and that was a whole process in yeah itself. absolutely these people had technically been free for a while it was only on june it was on juneteenth that they discovered it mm. and it was the same here wasn't it these these people had been liberated but really that process took time and more trauma and more and they weren't all liberated one go no. It was like a slowly retreat and set up and retreat. Whichever ones we can't hold on to anymore. Exactly. Um, yeah, so there was a lot of little points that you didn't know at the time. The, yeah. the volume one, and I don't have the notes, but one thing that was very, very interesting during it was the slow creep of... This is what I was going to mention. The rising tide yes. of the racism and the scapegoating and everything like that. And And that's something that I had seen portrayed in literature before um there's a fantastic novel um called good a goodbye to berlin by a chap called christopher isherwood um and it is uh christopher isherwood is an englishman he was living in berlin weimar berlin as a gay english teacher obviously weimar berlin being a hub of a, a real safe place for homos for get homosexuals in the early 20th century so the, the 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 twenties and thirties was that yeah mo the, between the, World War One and Two yeah so the Weimar years the twenties 
um, the Roaring Twenties in America were an amazing time to be a gay person in Berlin. There was a drag cabaret and this thriving community of gay people. Um, it was a really, really incredible time. Um, and so Christopher Isherwood went there when the getting was good because Britain was still fairly fucking homophobic in the 1920s. And this novel is a personal story. It's actually the novel that Cabaret is based on. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because there was so much Cabaret. Like that was the, you know, that was the kind of zeitgeist of the time, if you were. Um, and you, but you see throughout the novel the insidious creep of National Socialism. And that was so much more powerful here because we were seeing it from the perspective of the people who knew they were going to be subjugated. And something that Vladek did was try and move away from it. Like mm. Vladek was an intelligent, astute, wealthy man, and he did everything he could to put himself in a safe place leading up to this event and still got caught up in it. And he also interacted with a lot of Jewish people who just didn't think it was going to be that bad. And stayed. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's so interesting because, I've, I, again, another really interesting and brilliant portrayal of life in Germany during that transitional period between democracy and national socialism mm. is the day, that the day that Hitler stole Pink Rabbit, which is a children's book written from the perspective of a German Jew whose family got the fuck out. Yeah. They got the, they got the fuck to Switzerland and then got the fuck from Switzerland to England when the getting was good. And again, it's, it's that, yeah, it's that insidious creep of national socialism in German culture. And I think art does an incredible job of portraying it. One thing that, I had very, I don't even say mixed feelings, but just like, you know, when you read a part, an aspect of it, you just want to talk about, even though you don't have a point to make. Yeah. I have one of those and it's just how, um, how Vladek, how he survived the Holocaust. And I feel yeah. like the way he did, like we, like we were talking, this is a weird tangent, but like we were talking last time about Leave Extraordinary Gentleman and how yeah. one of the characters was so great because she was so resourceful. I feel like Vladek is a real life, very resourceful human being. Yes. And, but you could also put it down somewhat to luck as well. And I feel like he's a kind of living embodiment. And I guess a lot of people who go through these kind of events are. Is it just because they managed to survive because of whatever their characteristics or traits are? Or is it you're just speaking to the ones who survived? And it seems like, oh, they were resourceful, but it's like, well, someone, statistically, someone was going to survive and they seem like lucky or resourceful because that's who you get to speak to when it's all said and done. Yeah, I agree. But he is very resourceful in the sense that he's always looking for these opportunities to kind of make himself valuable to someone or to like yes. learn a trade or to, you know, um, gain information. And he's, he carries that with him through his life. And that obviously then affects his relationship with his son, you know, in the modern day. But it, it, like I heard uh, there's this phrase about luck where it's about, was it opportunity and uh, preparation meeting? Yes. And it feels like he was always preparing, but even well before the Holocaust, he was just a resourceful guy who, who was um, industrious. He was just like, oh, this is a trade that's doing well and I know someone, so I'm going to get into this trade and I'm going to make money. And Yeah, because he moved 
to Poland, didn't he? Yeah. And from there, he became a factory owner. Yeah, like, that's what I mean. He saw an opportunity and he took it. Yeah, absolutely. And in the early 20th century, being in manufacturing was the way you made money. Yeah. it was. They were the fucking NFTs of the day, weren't they? And yeah, he was an incredibly astute man. And I think, you know, the passage, the passage, the bit where he makes himself useful to that SS officer. To and, becoming the shoe repair? Yeah. And the SS officer starts leaving the room with his leftover food in it. Mm. And he just kind of quietly leaves Art a meal. And I think... And also telling, Vladek, him, sorry. telling him where to stand when they select people the next day and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's, it's so fascinating because it would be so easy and I think really reasonable and accurate to be hateful towards your captors. But something that Vladek recognized is that people are people. Yeah, a lot and, of people were just work like they just worked in yeah. the, the machine. Yeah, I mean they were doing evil things, but they were at their core still human beings. And I think, and also just to be clear, he never forgives anyone or anything. No. Like that. But in the, in the moment, he sees, well, if I'm nice to this person, I will survive. Yeah, or, he, or I'll increase my chances of survival. He, he's able he's able to see the humanity in people when he sees it, and say, "Yep, no, that's a person who is going to be useful to me in this situation." Yes. And yeah, and I think, again, Art does a really, really good job of not lionizing his father. It would be yeah. really easy here to make this a story about how his father survived the Holocaust through his own grit and determination. But Art does a very good job. And possibly, you know, you have to give credit to Vladek in the way that he told Art the story yeah he just tells him factually straight up absolutely and as much as you are right he presents a very even-handed view of the way that his father survived the holocaust i think what it is there's a bit of modesty that comes from maybe that generation and it's weird to think of like modesty applying to surviving a tragedy but at the end of the day it's it's a personality trait so it just it happens you know in every situation mm. and the way that he 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 will do these things like he will take these actions or these preparations and as an outsider you can say bloody hell that was like really smart or like really like intuitive how you knew to do that and he would just say well it just made sense like yeah he's not like yeah no that was good on me or whatever he's just like well i just saw the the logic and did it and it worked out absolutely and when it doesn't work out he's also just like and that was just bad luck that on that day these people were here or this happened or whatever. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think like a lot of issue with talking about this as well, it's such a densely written uh, piece of work that doesn't read like a dense written piece of work. So reading it, I would say it's, it's very accessible. And I think that's, you know, comic books generally are quite an accessible medium. Yeah. But there's so much to get into in terms of like the smaller stuff and the themes and the messaging and everything that's just, it's difficult to talk about. It is, isn't it? It's incredibly difficult to talk about. I think the modern day stuff at times is more interesting than the, than the past stuff because the modern day is how we... Even though this was what in the in the nineties this came out, didn't it? Uh, nineteen eighty to nineteen ninety one. So even though it was maybe written in the mid nineties and came out with the late nineties. No, it was written in it came out between nineteen eighty. 
1980 and 1991. So it came out predominantly in the 80s. Right. So even though it was how people in the 80s were relating to um, the the Holocaust and the war and everything, it's also just about how people who didn't go through it relate to people who did go through it. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is something that I really wanted to get into is the fact that even though art is asking his father to kind of dig up and talk about parts of his past that he clearly doesn't want to talk about. Vladek is an incredibly frustrating person for him to be around. Yes. Vladek is this incredible... Vladek's a really challenging human being um, with a lot of love for his son. Specifically because he just has a different way of living that can be... He has a different way of living that makes sense if you've been through what he's been through. Yeah. But if you've not been through, just comes across as, well, this is a large conversation, comes off maybe as, as cheap or petty or needlessly mm. needlessly complex or over the top. And one point that I was going to make is that I never realized that things like the stereotype of Jewish people could actually stem from the real life tragedy they went through. The frugality that allowed people to survive that situation yeah yeah and 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 again you know watching art who lived in america in the 80s he was a relatively wealthy man in america when the getting was good watching him interface with his father's frugality is so fucking interesting isn't it yeah there's one part specifically where um vladek he's he's just uh broken up with his his girlfriend at the time yeah and the reason being, and we may touch on this or not if we have time, but the Art's mother, who survived the Holocaust, then killed herself years later yeah. to when Art was a child. Yeah. Um, so Vladek, he has this girlfriend, and then they break up because the girlfriend, she went through the same thing. She went through the Holocaust as well. She doesn't have those traits that Vladek yes. has, and she can't deal with him either. Yeah. But again these traits it's not it's not again it's not the stereotype of of jewish people or anything but he has them because of what he went through and they saved his life yeah um but when he's alone he's talking about like oh i can't really look after myself so why don't i move in with you and art's just (laughs) like art portrays himself very real as well yeah poorly but real like he's like i don't want i can't live with you i i will go crazy if we live together um and his dad's like well, you know, I can't get my own place. Like, I can't look after myself. And he's like, why don't you hire a nurse? And Vladek's like, oh, what are the neighbors going to think if this woman comes around every day? And he's like, get a male nurse. He's like, now. And like, oh, I don't want to bother with that. And he's like, I don't want to spend my money like that. And Art's like, you have all this money. Why don't you use it to be comfortable in your later life? And he's yeah. like, and he's like, oh, if I spent money like you, I wouldn't have any. But And the part that I'm screaming at the page, which is how good the writing is that it draws you into their conflicts, is I'm like, Mate, you're you're all you're at the end of your life, and you have a, a huge savings. Just use it. Use it. But yeah. he, that mentality of saving up everything is what saved his life. Yeah, potentially. And it's it's the little things. So it's him. Are you going to talk about the half eaten cereal? The half eaten cereal. Yeah. But him with two tubs of screws. Mm. Um, dividing them and sorting these tubs of screws in his shed, or when Art and his father are walking down the street, and he picks up. Or when Art and his father are walking down the street and he starts bending over despite being really frail to pick up these loose ends of wire because he can use them for something. He can yeah. make use of them. 
and it's seeing all of the tiny little ways in which his experience has changed who he is as a human being. Yeah. That I think, and I, and I, and I think that's what one of the things that art was trying to give us. I think art was trying to portray the situation exactly as it is, which mm. that Vladek has these traits which helped him during tragedy and now are now annoying to normal people who didn't experience yeah. the same. The art is annoyed by them, but at the same time knows exactly why he's like that. There's no, he's no like, oh, I wonder why he's like this, and then finds out. Like even before he hears his story, he's like, yeah, I know why he's like that. Yeah. Um, and I empath, he the art empathizes why he's like mm. that. But the the fact is, and this kind of can be missing from fiction at times, is when you live day to day with someone, eccentricities like that can drive you insane. Yeah. And that's missing from fiction because we look at fiction as the idealized version of life and this is mm. this is real life. Yeah. And this is hesitant to why why I think we were hesitant to cover this at all. Yeah, we talked about this a lot, didn't yeah. we? The fear was that like what we've done in the, the, the four episodes before this, I think it's four, I might have miscounted. Might be four. I think it's four. But the four episodes we've done and what we will continue to do is we will take a bit of fiction. And then pick it apart. I like, it. Yeah, and we'll be like, oh, I liked it when this part happened. Oh, I didn't like this character. Oh, no, the author should have done this. And you just can't do this for this type of work oh. because it's just, you you can only experience the story as it is. Yeah. Um, and take away what you can take away from it. Yeah. The, the only thing we can do is celebrate how good the writing is because of the, how well art translates real life into this condensed easy to digest version that's the only yeah. thing we can really no i, I, I say criticize which is praising it because it's amazing there's nothing mm. to criticize and also you can't criticize someone's personal retelling of their own story or yeah. their father's story i think that's a really interesting point because it sounds silly to say that there's nothing to criticize but there really isn't yeah i'd i'd call this as close to a perfect comic book as you could get yeah i think so and like i'll be blunt and say you know you could say that it's cheating because it's a, re a retelling of a real life tragedy. Yeah. But that's the fact of it. That is just the fact of life is when someone, again, translates so well the story into this modern telling. If it was a bad translation, if we thought, oh, they didn't get this across quite well, or mm. there's, been, there's been conflicting stories about this part or whatever, we could criticize that. But the fact is, Art recorded, audio recorded his dad telling his story and then just has done a really good job of putting pen to paper and making a comic graphic novel out of it. And I think a guilty pleasure of mine is autobiography. Mm. I really like an autobiography. That's the weirdest guiltiness of a pleasure. Like, my guilty pleasure is limp biscuits. Like, <laughs> yours is a thing that people do without guilt. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, yeah, one of my guilty... I mean, I don't, I don't like the concept of a guilty pleasure. I'm not guilty about anything I enjoy. I agree with you, but also Limp Biscuit are assholes and their music kind of sucks. Yeah, I can't that help noise. it. Exactly. That, I, I reserve my right to feel guilty about that. I think it's Limp Biscuit that I meant... My partner has tickets to go see Limp Biscuit. I think it's Limp Biscuit. It's not Blink One A Two. No, well, I wish I had Blink One A Two tickets. <laughs> Where are you? Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, she has Sad, had to get that into the. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Um, she, uh, yeah, no, they keep cancelling, and she's really excited to go see Limp Biscuit. She's had them since before she's known me. And so there's, I'm like the third person that's meant to have gone and used these tickets with her and they just keep rescheduling. 
This um, is going to come across as the weirdest. Like, if someone tells someone else about this episode, this podcast, like, well, they they have quite a an understandably frank discussion about the Holocaust, and then they go on a tangent about limp biscuits. <laughs> it's like I, I'm not. I, if I didn't, if I wasn't here right now, I would not have good like idea, con- like <laughs> concepts of how that happened. <laughs> so you were uh, um, you you find autobiographies interesting? Yes, and 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 I like it, and I like an autobiography. And I think this might be one of the best biographies I've ever read. Yeah. Oh, uh, I, I've, I've barely read any autobiographies, and I would agree with you. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's... Oh, it's a, it's a, which is a, it's a biography and an autobiography, isn't it? Well, this it? is it. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a biography of his father. I was about to correct you. You know, when you push the glass, I'm like, uh, actually, but yeah, it's both. I mean, I suppose the way of describing it is it's a postmodernist cross-generational biography and autobiography if i for something like this you need to invent a new genre for it to exist in yes but it's a cross-generational biography portrayed in a postmodern way um which makes it really fucking hard to categorize it's a rare instance as well of a creative making one amazing thing and like mm. he's had other works and maybe they're good maybe they're not but i'm gonna go out on a limb and say that none of his other works even come close to this acclaim his other most notable work appears in this book the um it's like a uh science Prisoner fiction. on planet hell yes that's which fair. i really want to talk about um but no there's 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 often a self-aggrandizement that comes in the very act of writing a memoir or a biography. Mm. Um, a great example is another excellent autobiography, which is Russell Brand's My Bookie Work. Right. Brilliant biography, very touching, very powerful, very funny, very charming. But in writing about himself, he aggrandizes himself because he is saying to the world that I am worthy of having a book written about me. And I think something that's really interesting about this is that there's no self of self, there's no sense of self-aggrandizement in it. Yeah, no, no one comes off as good. There's a natural amount of of empathy and sympathy for, yeah. for Vladek, but there's, I wouldn't say, well, there's a point actually I was going to make where he actually, you you might think he's a good person, and then there's a point here where he maybe is not so much which is there's a point in volume two where they go to the supermarket and they pick up a hitchhiker who's black and Vladek is not a fan of black people. No. And he also, you know, there, there's a scene where his wife, his current girlfriend wife says that, you know, she feels that she won't compare to his first wife. And he's just like, yeah, you don't. Yeah. And so, and again, that's the complete opposite of, self-aggrandizing or even aggrandizing someone else it's- yeah he yeah no him art has done a really excellent job of portraying both himself and vladek and i'm still a big fan of vladek as a person and a character as yeah. both and he was just a person with real life faults well again as i said like he art does a really great job of portraying them as human yes exactly and i think that's even in fiction i love even in some of the greatest novels that I love, like The Great Gatsby is a great example. Gatsby is portrayed beautifully, but as something more than human. He's, you know, he there is some there is something of a caricature in it, like a a, a mystery that elevates him to just being a a, a 
fallible character. There, there, there yeah, there, there's some element of caricature in it, mm. and I think it's ironic that this is a literal fucking caricature that doesn't portray its characters as such. Yeah, it does the opposite to achieve the 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 goal. So yeah, that, doesn't it, it? By making it again further from reality, you're they're able, he, the art is able to get more into the reality mm. and keep your attention. And I feel like, I feel like, I think this is a fault of mine and also maybe larger audiences. If it was just a straight book or, you know, just a written page of book, or it was like a comic book, but with the very realistic artwork of just depicting humans, I don't think it would have my interest as much because I think if told from the start, like here's a book or here's a realistic graphic novel about the Holocaust, I think I would be like, well, that's it sounds very heavy and depressing and i'm not sure i want to get into that whereas by having it again it gets your guard down by having mm. a cartoon caricature caricature of animals and you go oh this is interesting it's like a light presentation but of a heavy subject and then that reels you in and now i'm i'm glad i i'm 100 glad i read it because i feel like i i've been telling you to read it for years haven't yes, i exactly and and I think I would have even without this, uh, but this definitely gave me the kick up the ass to actually do it. Yeah. I think it almost it comes down to a similar thing to what we were talking about earlier with flesh, which is that by not presenting you with the gore, flesh becomes something more potent and more powerful. Yeah. By not presenting you with purely human characters here, he's achieved something more powerful than he could have done had he shown you the gore yeah. of the Holocaust, because there is gore, yeah, and there, there, you know, there was blood, but you don't. He, he's, he's, and it, it might actually be that he needed to write it this way because he couldn't look at it directly. Maybe I can't imagine what it must have been like for a Jewish person to have to draw images of Jewish people wearing the fucking star hanging. Yeah. And so it might actually be that this was his way of not looking at it directly. And I think as well, when you, by distancing the reader from the reality, your, the reader's mind naturally fills in the blanks. Yeah. And that's where it becomes its heaviest because you imagine, you always have that at the back of your mind of like, this, is, this happened to real people. Mm, and yeah. then, and I think your mind naturally fills in the gaps in that, um, yeah, that you, you remember that happened to real people and then you, uh, you imagine worse than what's happening on the page. Yes. And that sticks with you more than if it was just a overly gory, real, his death happening kind of situation. Yeah. When we were talking about, when the other said about Vladek and his reaction to the black hitchhiker, yeah, I had a theory about it. And it's kind of like a, very, a grander theory, but I think it mm. kind of fits here. Because Vladek, they, uh, Art and his girlfriend, they confront Vladek and they say like, how can you react to people different to you this way when the nazis did the same to you and i think he doesn't explicitly say this but i think the reasoning is that vladek and maybe more people who go through something like the holocaust they have a higher bar for what's horrible to do to other people so his his level is he's like i i think i have i have an idea of what they're like and i believe it and i just want to stay away from them which nowadays is a horrible thing, like yeah. a very horrible thing to ever say. But to Vladek, like he's had much, much worse done to him. So by his own 
barometer of how you treat other people that's quite low where he's just like i just don't want to i just don't want to interact and again isn't that just another way that his humanity was stripped yes exactly yes it's not just the loss of his own dignity but it's part of his humanity that got taken from yeah he was treated so badly that his level for just being a normal person is Mm. is even worse than if he hadn't have gone through it because humans do adapt to horrible circumstances and that is like one of the many ways and and again that's the whole theme of the entire book is how people adapt but also how it affects them later on in life as well and even just day to day the next day years like the decades down the line um and the whole the dual time periods is so good for properly getting that across yeah because it shows it contextualizes vladek this is what it does the whole way through we are seeing this person displaying behaviors that we would kind of consider a little bit brutish i think and unpleasant sometimes in the way that he interacts with art even though there's a lot of love there and he strikes me as a very kind man he can sometimes be a bit coarse and a bit brutal but it's contextualized within his experience and yeah i agree with you i think i think it it it, it paints him as human it paints him as being so human and again vadek's barometer of kind is like i'm giving you sustenance to live off or i'm like helping you with what you essentially need the coat yeah and things like that the right? coat. and art is like no you're not listening to what i want like you're just giving me what you think i need which again during the holocaust you can be like you need food you need water you need yeah. shelter like if by giving those things to other people that's his version of of expressing love and being kind yeah but art in the modern day not having that to worry about those things he's like no, listen to like what I'm actually telling you. I'm expressing what I want and you're not listening because you're just jumping to what you think I should have or need. And then there's this interesting thing that you touched on a little bit earlier, which is our experiencing guilt that he gets to experience his wants and have his wants met. He, you know, having had a father who didn't even have his, have his needs met. Yeah, and it's also why when he's being hounded by people for the success of the yeah. of the comic... He reverts to a child over yeah. the panels, which again, which is a great example of panel layout. So over the yeah. six panels, so two a row, he shrinks with each panel and becomes smaller and smaller. And the last one, he's a crying child. And I think he he feels like a permanent child because maybe again, because he didn't go through what his father went, what his parents went through. And maybe he unconsciously thinks of that as a, a passage to adulthood or a yeah. right of adulthood yeah. is to go through horrific trauma yeah and because he didn't do that he feels like that kind of arrested development of a permanent child mm. and that again speaks to this whole that the the younger generation having it easier than the older generation you feel like you're not earning your place in the world by suffering like your parents did and that's yeah. a very universal thing but this is it's intensified by the tragedy of the holocaust and and similar events i have one last thing i'd like to talk about yeah go ahead and it is prisoner on the hell planet a case history right and you think is there similarities to like the themes of that and mouse well this so no that is the other comic strip he was famous for yeah and it was it was written into the comic that he inserted in and it's about 
his mother's tragic taking of her own life. Right. And she also was a Holocaust survivor. There's a few interesting things happening here. First things first, he draws himself in Holocaust pajamas. Like he is in striped pajamas through that passage. Right. And I think that is the most visceral representation in the text of the way that that the Holocaust resonated through the generations. Like in in the death in the loss of his mother, he is still he is he is he is as trapped by it. Oh, he's not as trapped by it, but he's trapped by it. Yeah, it, like he he is shackled by what happened. And there's a point where he's having a really dark black moment, and the thing that splashes on the screen is suicide. Hitler did it, and so you know there's 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 that element to it. But the thing that I find really fascinating about it, and the thing it kind of highlights without saying it, is the sheer amount of untold stories. And I think the pile of bodies that he's sitting upon while he's writing it really demonstrates that. Mm. But it's the fact that his mother's story, we hear his father's story. His mother would have had a distinct and unique story of her experience of surviving the Holocaust, which Art never gets to ask her about. And even more so, it's even more tragic because not only does he not get to ask her about it, she wrote a diary or memoirs and Vladek got rid of them. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, and it's it's the destruct, yeah, yeah, no, I forgot about that. Yeah, so it, it, it kind of dangles it, like, in the story. It's like, because Vladek literally goes like, oh yeah, your mum had these diaries. And Art's like, oh my god, really? Like, oh my, you've never mentioned about them. Like, I'd love to read them. And then Vladek's like, ah, no, I got rid of them. And it's that, like, dangling it and then taking it away. I don't know if, if if that was a real thing, like that was just a real part of the story, that's a coincidentally great writing technique yeah. of like m- making a metaphor of the missing story of of Art's mum. Mm. So I assume it did happen and it's just a coincidence. But I think also the reason that Art was so, why he included it in the stories, because, you know, that's why he was sad about them being destroyed. Even if it is a coincidence, again, I'm going to rabbit on about this. When we read a text, when you read a text, you have to assume that everything has purpose. Right. Every, anything that appears in a text appears there for a reason. And any conclusion that you can draw, which is sustained by textual evidence, is valid. Yeah. And so when we're talking about his mum's lost story, and there is a tangible mentioning of that in the text, that's a valid point of discussion. Yeah. And I think the what you were saying before about it's hard to criticize a real story, and not talking about criticism, but I think it's it's... There's something to be gained from what information Art included, what he didn't. Because any information he included, it wasn't just a true life telling of like, and then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then it was lunchtime, and then this happened. He's like, what am I drawing? What am I paneling out and making the story? So he had to decide what to include and yeah. what not to include. But the fact that he included his mother's uh, destroyed diary it, it must hold significance by him including it that never panned out there is there's there's a there's something to consider when you're reading biographies really great example is the strange narrative of Alado Equiano which is a slave narrative Alado Equiano was a slave who worked incredibly hard and was able to buy his own freedom and he writes a pretty fucking fantastical narrative of his life 
and he had some wild experiences and some awful experiences. What what is largely untold in Eladio Aquiano's narrative as written by himself is the fact that once he was freed and had money, he bought slaves. Right. And so what we have there is an unreliable narrator. We have a narrator who the facts as presented in his narrative don't tie up with the rest of the facts that we have about his life. And I think what we have in Art Spiegelman is one of the most reliable narrators. Yeah. He's definitely. an incredibly reliable narrator. And that's evidenced by the fact that he leaves in he leaves things in this story which are compromising to his own character. Yeah, to his and to his dad, who, you know, in any other I think any other writer would just leave as very sympathetic and very yeah. brave and and uh and interesting but he's just like oh no but he was all this stuff as well yeah and it and it makes it all the more powerful to the modern reader i think i think i think this is interesting because i I like to play a game sometimes which is where do certain books appear in bookshops Right. right and with mouse next time you go to your local bookshop dear listener um Go see where Mouse is and to report back to us. Because does it live in the history section? I've always known it to be with the graphic novels. I've seen it with the graphic novels. I've seen it with the Pulitzer Prize winners, but which it is. At the very least with the graphic novels, it's normally one of the ones that is face the front cover is facing. Yeah, it's yeah, it's the one that they they really want you to see the cover of, right? But does it live in biography? Does it live in history does it live in the pulitzer prize winners does it live in graphic novels it's all of those things and one great part to end on is just a little bit of levity where the one place that it doesn't live in is certain american schools libraries and the reason for that is because it's one of the titles that recently got banned by uh i don't know for sure but i'm probably gonna go out on a limb and if i was a gambling man i'd say probably republican groups and types are getting rid of it is this banned from schools in america Book banning in American schools is wild. Yeah, so it's not not all, but you know they have the whole states thing and yeah. different counties and well, like each individual school board, schools. Every single school board will make decisions about which books go on their list. Exactly, and the bit of levity is not that it's been banned because that sucks and everyone should have to read this. I think this should I, be required reading. Yeah, I think so. But this should be that one that you in school when you're made to read was it kill a mockingbird or mm. bloody um catcher in the rye or that yeah. this should be number one of that type of 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 reading especially because it's a comic book it's more appealing mm. just just by the medium the bit of levity that we're going to finish on just for a little bit of a laugh is the reason that these republican groups are getting it banned not because it makes white people feel guilty because you know that's why they're banning anything these yeah. days but it's because the book depicts mouse genitalia. And You're that's fucking kidding the me. worst thing that you could ever find in any kind of book. Like, I don't know about you. I was watching Fresh earlier with like, the <laughs> people losing body parts. I was like, thank God there's no animal genitalia in this. Because otherwise I'd turn it off and never come back. Is that really why it's banned? That's the reason it's been branding about. Fuck me. Because they're doing they're on this tirade with this whole like grooming of children and blaming the lbgtq uh, groups and everything because all gay people love mouse cock well they're just they're putting it under that umbrella of like like save the kids from sexuality <laughs> you know that old bollocks so again a, a nice oh, bit of levity to end on it you makes know. your pubes curl doesn't it and if anything it's kind of that 
kind of comes back around of why stories like this are important to censorship and totalitarianism and forcing ideology like it all comes around like history is a flat circle if yeah isn't it no i i I completely agree with you that this is one that should be required required reading yeah and required reading i don't know what says my required reading of the week is (laughs) is is mouse i just i was just rendered completely inarticulate we'll Um, we'll leave it in luckily (laughs) walk away away, Um, (laughs) no i agree with you i think it should be required (laughs) (laughs) Ah, i I can't do it i will finish up by saying we think that this should be required reading that was better yes can i can i try one more time classically trained Am I having, Should we sound it out? Is the left side of my face drooping? Am I having a stroke? I feel like I'm having a stroke listening to you Required talk. Required reading. There Required we... reading. Yes. I there did we it. go. I did it. Did it. And what a note to end on. Uh, folks, it's been emotional. Uh, yes. And I don't say that lightly. Um, but I'm trying a light in the end anyway. Um, if you've just tuned back in, maybe we put in time codes for this to say when we're finished and you can listen to the outro. Oh, um, always listen to the outro. Yeah, bit. exactly. But it's yeah, it's been a darker one, and hopefully, I say hopefully, like we don't, hopefully, we won't have to revisit things like this too many times because it's heavy and it can be difficult. And the the reason we will do it if we feel it's necessary is because there are necessary stories to tell and to yeah. to read about and to tell other people to read. So. But, you know, next week, it'll probably be something quite light. Uh, we haven't decided yet. To be honest, at this time recording, so these episodes are probably going to come out January kind of time. We're recording this now in December. <laughs> We're going to take a bit of a break for Christmas, Christmas and everything. <laughs> exactly. So the next one, we probably won't know until we get there, whenever we record the next episode. But yeah. we're hoping for a beginning of 2023. That's the comic literate publication date extravaganza exactly it's going to be a big deal because a bunch of episodes are going to drop at once essentially yeah. but we're also going to stay a couple ahead to you know for the recording schedule and everything yeah you know all that jazz yeah exactly but we will see everyone in january when you actually finally hear these episodes that we've been recording for the past 10 years so thank you so much for listening if you'd like to hear more from ryan he makes things under the YouTube channel Comic Stands. There will be, yes. They uh, will exist. By spring 23, that's when they're going to start. I've got a bunch of subjects already lined up. Amazing. And if you want to hear more from me, I talk about Norse mythology on a YouTube channel called Myths for Sad Grown-Ups. We will also have some uh, short animations of clips Ooh, from these are we, podcasts. Are we teasing that? Are we teasing something that doesn't exist yet? Yeah, I think. That's ballsy. I mean, we're gonna. I the plan is we're going to, you know, commission some uh, animators to create short clips so we can abuse the algorithms of TikTok and YouTube Shorts and everything like that. Um, still on the fence where we start a Twitter or not because <laughs> will Twitter exist? <laughs> as, and as useful as a tool as it is, it's run by a guy who is actively spreading disinformation and yeah. also got openly booed at a Dave Chappelle show last night. So fucking really yeah and he deleted the account of who posted the video to twitter of him getting booed so i mean it's amazing that in 2022 somebody other than dave chappelle is getting booed at a dave chappelle show <laughs> well dave chappelle is normally the last person to be booed at a dave chappelle show no, not at this point 
It's well, not going great for him right they're now. Pay, is it? Yeah, they're, but they're, they're paying two hundred and eighty dollars like to be there. Is so, it two hundred and eighty bucks to see Dave Chappelle? Well, it? the reason that's so uh, it's a whole thing. But Dave Chappelle basically because of all the booing, he's like, oh, the booing's coming from the top ones up there. I think the 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 people with the worst seats kind of basically implying that it's the poorer people who are booing Elon. <laughs> And everyone's like, mate, your tickets cost $280 at minimum. And you're making, f- you're like mocking the people who like saved up to go see you. Oh, do you know what? I've always adored Dave Chappelle. I've always found him so funny. But just recently, I found him really out of touch. Yeah, extremely out of touch these days. And, and, and it's such a shame because he's always been so fucking woke. Mm. I've I've always found myself agreeing with him, and just recently it's been like, oh, you shouldn't say that, mate. Yeah, he's friends with billionaires now, so I don't know who that is. Oh, billionaires! <laughs> I thought you said billionaires. I was Billy. like, I fucking know who that is. My friend billionaires. <laughs> like, I got my buddy billionaires here, <laughs> and he happens to be quite wealthy. But anyway, Alan Moore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Again, one day we're going to do an episode without mentioning Elmore, and, nope. and a Claxton's going to go off. It's going to be like, woo, woo. What I think you should do, Ryan, mm. is when you edit the, we can stop now. This is just a conversation that I want to have with you. I feel like this is going to end up in the episode anyway, but. Okay. Or do we want to do the outro? Do we do want to say the goodbyes and then be done? Goodbye. Thank you, everyone, for listening. See you in the next episode. Goodbye. Hey.